Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So this is Spotlight on France. This week, though, Spotlight on Franco-American mm. relations kind of mm. hit a low point this oh, week. <laughs> didn't they just? Although they do seem to have made up a bit. Mm, yeah. True, true. The presidents of the two countries, Emmanuel Macron and Joe Biden, had a phone call on Wednesday. Seems to have helped things. This all started last week when Australia announced it was dumping a multi-billion euro deal to buy French-made submarines, and instead it was going to buy American nuclear submarines. Mm. All this is part of a new security alliance with the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah, what's known as AUKUS. <laughs> and, Very uh, non-awkward name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And France is not involved. And understandably, perhaps France was furious. Mm -hmm. uh, Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian last week called the decision by the US to turn to the UK and Australia brutal, unpredictable, a stab in the back. Mm. It looks a lot like what Mr. Trump would do, he said. Yeah, they're very damning. Yeah, strong words there. But um, I mean, it does make sense. You know, as the US is one of France's strongest allies. This does feel like a betrayal. France recalled its ambassadors to the US and Australia, which in the grand theater of diplomacy is actually a very big deal. Yeah, France felt it had to make a stand, uh, especially, uh, of course, in the run up to the uh, presidential election next spring. Macron will most certainly seek re-election. And he, you know, he needs to be seen as defending uh, France's role on the international scene. Yeah, yeah. Who knows exactly what he and Biden talked about on the phone? Yeah, I would love to have been a fly <laughs> on the wall on that one. Right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe Michael said, think of my presidential campaign. <laughs> you can't do this to me, <laughs> Joe. In any case, whatever it was, they did come to some kind of agreement. The ambassadors are going back. Yeah. So for now, they're friends again. Mm -mm. That is a wake up call, right, for France, also for the EU about where all these defense alliances are being made around the world, NATO in question, a European defense force. Um, in the meantime, of course, anyone want a submarine? <laughs> there are 12 in the works. There were 12 in the works here in mm. France for the Australians. None were actually built yet, but the research is still there. The workers still want to work. So, you know, give them a call. So, Sarah, this is the U.S. band Eagles of Death Metal performing at the Bataclan on the 13th of November 2015. The concert ground to a halt when a commando of French jihadists shot into the crowds, killing 90 people. So it was part of an evening of bloodshed. The jihadists organized other attacks in the stadium in Saint-Denis, north of Paris, and in cafe terraces near the Bataclan venue. 130 people died in those attacks. Hundreds of others were injured and traumatized. And survivors have been listening and reliving the horror of that evening in what is France's biggest ever court case, which opened earlier this month. Yeah, the trial opened in a specially built court within the old Palais de Justice in central Paris. 20 people are on trial. 14 of them are in the box, including the only surviving member of the commando, Salah Abdeslam. Some of the survivors and their families are following the trial in court, others via an audio transmission. It is an extraordinary trial in so many ways, right? Um, the statistics are kind of mind-boggling. Five years of police investigations, 47,000 interviews wow. carried out, yeah. Uh, more than 500 volumes of evidence, 330 lawyers involved. <laughs> That's a lot of lawyers. Yeah. Um, and the case is going to be long, long, expected to last 140 days, spread over nine months. Journalists from more than 100 different media have got accredited. Lots of them are from abroad. 
Not not surprising. Some 25 of the victims weren't French. Our colleague here at RFI, Michael Fitzpatrick, has been following the trial every day. I chatted to him about his his own perspective as a journalist, how he tries to make it relevant for people who aren't directly concerned. But we started out about finding out where he is exactly covering the trial. The courtroom I get to visit at the moment, I get to visit during the pauses because, of course, there are so many journalists and there are exactly 34 places for journalists inside the courtroom. So I sit in a place called La Chambre des Criers, where there are um, television screens which relay the information uh, from the main courtroom, which is just across the corridor from us. Uh, So I'm seeing it in a sense at second hand. So you talk about journalists, several thousands have been accredited, including quite a lot of foreign media. I've met Danish journalists, I hear English voices, Uh, there are Spanish journalists, South Americans, because of course there were dozens of different nationalities among the 130 people killed and the hundreds injured. So it's been described as an extraordinary trial, Michael. You're in the thick of it. In what way is it really extraordinary? The courage of the families of the victims and the survivors who present themselves in court to listen to police evidence. There are frequently pauses and hesitations and sobs and apologies to the families for what they are about to hear. Um, The other thing that has struck me uh, is the way in which the judicial right is uh, is being used. Uh, the legal specialist, uh, Denis Sala himself, a, a judge, has said that uh, this is the way the Republic answers barbarity by presenting our version of justice and our version of law. There's a lot of procedural stuff going on. There was a, the president of the court was at one point was reading for about eight hours. How does one render all of this trial kind of relevant, significant, keep people interested? Well, there is a challenge there. I have to admit that the two days uh, during which we listened to the reading of the president's report were extremely difficult. But that's part of the procedure. There were more than a million pages of evidence and that presidential report actually condensed all of the evidence into a sort of narrative. So, yes, it is difficult. I have to admit that I don't always uh, take in everything. I don't (laughs) note everything because I'm I'm there simply to report on this as a human being. And there are times when you simply accept that a legal ritual is being enacted. And uh, I think the weight of it, the, the length of time that is taken for the testimony, I think that's terribly important in the long run. We can't not mention Salah Abdeslam because he's the only surviving member of the so-called commando who carried out these terrible attacks. And for so long in prison, he refused to speak. Now he has. Inevitably, there is a lot of attention around him. How are you dealing with that? Um, Trying to reflect what the man says as accurately as possible. And at the same time, I have a feeling that we in the media are giving him more attention than he deserves. That was one of the risks uh, involved in this trial. Uh, He hasn't spoken to investigators since his arrest, uh, but he's now chosen to speak and he has chosen to maintain a persona and that is the persona of the Islamic State fighter, the man who represents authentic Islam. Uh, These are quotes from himself. And uh, of course, journalists are attracted by these outbursts. 
He was allowed to speak briefly. He didn't have much of any importance to say and the judge told him to sit down and be quiet. When he refused, the judge simply switched off his microphone. That control is available and since his attempted outbursts have been simply cut before they even got going. So the sound of a pencil on paper there. Michael's been following the trial in the antechamber. There are too many journalists for the courtroom, but there are artists Mm. in the courtroom, five of them. Any visuals coming out of this trial are their work. Because courtrooms in France are closed to any visual or audio recording. Yep, yep. So newspapers and TV stations, they have to call on courtroom illustrators, as they're called, to provide a visual record. Now, court artists, of course, predate photography. The heyday in France is probably the 19th century, with the printing press allowing for the development of mass journalism. Though the advent of photography meant that cameras were at first allowed in courtrooms, um, but they were loud. You know, they had flashes mm. going off. The cameras made noise. They called a nuisance, and many judge actually ordered them out. The official law was passed banning cameras and recordings in 1954 after the murder trial of Gaston Dominici. That drew hordes of journalists from around the world, and they cited, this is enough for banning them outright. Yeah, it was a bit too sensationalist, mm. I guess. But courtroom artists could continue. Yeah, yeah. Today, there are a couple dozen of them working in France. Five are covering the Paris attacks trial. Many court illustrators do the work freelance. They supplement their work as artists or art teachers. Joris Ledin is a painter in Brittany. He's been illustrating cases in courtrooms in Brittany and the Loire Atlantique for 10 years, mostly for the West France newspaper. The paper recruited him from art school, and he said yes because he liked the idea of being able to have live models to draw. Technically, what I'm trying to do is capture a moment, an instant in time, and to describe it as quickly as possible. I work very, very quickly. And so my painting is sometimes a bit awkward, but it's honest, showing something happened in that moment. Ludin uses oil paints. Hmm. Yeah, it's unusual. He's probably the only court artist in France to do this. Uh, most of the others sketch with pencils or watercolors. He goes very quickly, and he doesn't worry about the paint drawing because that is one of the drawbacks of oil paint because the paintings get photographed for print or broadcast. Um, As most courtroom artists do, he always works in tandem with a journalist who tells him what kind of illustrations are needed for the article, you know, like portraits of the defendants, action shots, whatever they might be in the courtroom. Mm. Ledin sees himself as a kind of cameraman with paint. I bring the eye of an artist. I don't do any research about the trial I'm working on. I don't want to have any preconceptions about the person in front of me, and I don't start painting straight away. When the defendant first arrives in the courtroom, they don't know where they are and what's going on. So I wait until they get their bearings, and then I can see their typical expression or attitude. It takes about half an hour to get started. Sometimes things happen very, very quickly. I remember two defendants. One of them was making fun of the other, and all of a sudden he burst into laughter. 
He had no front teeth. I saw that for only a second or two, but I had to capture that moment in my painting. Ledin works quickly, doesn't stay long at the trials he covers. This minimizes his exposure in a way, you know, and it's a way for him to kind of stay sane because these are often very difficult cases. I mean, when you're going to call in a court artist, it's usually the big sensational cases. His approach is different from someone like Dominique Lemarier. She's worked in the business for 40 years. Um, interestingly, she started her career in the U.S. on visits there to see her aunt, who'd married an American man who worked as a camera operator in a TV station. He took her under his wing. He showed her around. Le Marier had studied fashion design, so she knew how to draw. And one day, when her uncle's news director was looking for a sketch artist for a trial, well, he managed to get her the job. Mm. She moved back to France in the 80s. Um, one of the first major cases she illustrated was that of Klaus Barbie, a Nazi who was stationed in Lyon under the Vichy regime. Yeah, he was known as the butcher of Lyon mm -hmm. uh, because of torturing prisoners. Yeah, yeah. And he was convicted of crimes against humanity in 1987 sentenced to life in prison. Le Marier covered most of the big trials of the last 30 years in France, you know, the Saint-Michel Metro bombers, the Clearstream corruption cases, the Betancourt affair. Her medium is watercolor for the most part. People are not in the courtroom, so I want them to feel the ambiance, like how it feels to be inside a courtroom. That's what I like. And I try to have my uh, judges or witnesses or uh, attorneys moving. I'm like a photographer. I stop and say, okay, that's the move I want. So then you need all the background of anatomy, muscles, bones. You have to remember. You've worked in the United States. You started your career in the United States and you worked here in France. There, there must be a difference. Obviously, one of the big differences is now there's more and more images in American courtrooms, whereas in France, it still stays pretty closed. But um, what would you say the biggest difference between the two experiences was or, or has been? Um, what I felt in America is that I really felt like a real journalist. Like even when my um, reporter was away, I would take notes, I would do the job, not as good as he did, but at least it was not lost. Like we were really a team. And in France, it wasn't the same thing? No, like uh, when we have the uh, huge trial of close Barbie, crime against humanity in Lyon, uh, they forgot about the cartoonist, about the courtroom artist. So we showed up and we said, hey. Where are we going to sit? They forgot. It's like for like the Bataclan, they called me four days ahead. I mean, we know for months that this trial is going to happen. I, I suppose the day they allow cameras in courtrooms in France, this job will probably disappear because it is a lot more expensive than a photographer, no? I just hope they don't do it because then they won't have any more witnesses because people will be scared. You think that people would hesitate taking the stand and actually showing up in court? Of course, of course. Or even going to the police, they would say, no, I don't want to be on TV. You know, when people stand as a witness, they're scared. They don't know the place with the judges. You know, it's like, wow. It, but but it's interesting that you say that photos would make witnesses won't, not want to come, but they're okay with you drawing them. Yes, yes, because it's an interpretation. You know, it's not a picture. It's you know, picture. It's real. It's live. It's you know, but a drawing is different. I know some judges they like it when we're here drawing. It brings something that is not cold, or you know, we're here with our sketch pad and the watercolor, and I know some judges they like it. it. It is a bit of a contrast, isn't it, from a very often very technical, and then there's these artists sitting there doing their thing. Yeah, and we are always sitting next. Uh, I mean, we are 
close to the victim families and um, sometimes we talk about arts and we talk about watercolor and sometimes I make them smile I like that I get the impression that there's a sort of sympathy with and empathy with the victims in these situations oh yes yeah I guess in these cases that you're working on it's pretty clear that these victims were victims, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. These are the ones you're called in for. Yeah, exactly. Like the West and Michel or the woman in the camps in Auschwitz. <laughs> there is no doubt they're victims. They're 100% victims. Yeah. This kind of work can be very emotionally affecting and draining. I mean, usually you're called in for these big trials that have, you know, intense ramifications. Oh, yeah. The worst. Yes. So, so like, how do you deal with it? Well, when I was in America, in my head, when the testimony were too difficult to hear, I would think in French and I would think of the ocean. And then this way, I couldn't really hear. So you disconnect? Yes, I disconnect. And in France, when I did some very difficult trial, I tried to think in English, but it's not my native language. So it doesn't work. I could still hear in French, but we have to listen because... Like I can do five drawings, 10 drawings, and only one is going to go on the news. And it might be the last one. And nine drawings are going to go in the trash because this is not the news. So you have to listen. You stopped this job in 2015. It was a big year for France with the attacks in Paris and especially Charlie Hebdo um, with all the cartoonists in particular were killed, a lot of them being your friends. And that, and that affected you a lot. I stopped. I mean, 40 years, that's enough. I've heard the worst I could. So, I mean, I feel very sorry for the victim of the Bataclan because I don't think they're going to get the answer they want. You know, they're not going to have, oh, we're sorry. We made a mistake. No way. No way. I cover some extremist trials like that. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm so sad for them. Are there regrets at all that you're not? covering the Bataclan trial. Any regrets at all that you're not there? Uh, well, w when I lived in America, my twin sister, I got her the job for another channel. So both of us were courtroom artists in Washington. So I was thinking, I should call Christine, my sister, and say, okay, Christine, let's go. And we finish, both of us, our career just one day. And I don't know. I don't know if I have the courage to do that. But it would be great to close the door, her and I, especially in Paris, in the old courthouse that I love. Uh, so should we do that? We have nine months to think about it and just go one day and sketch and goodbye and it's over. I don't know. Yeah. So wanting to leave the business making a mark in a way. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So who knows if she'll actually end up doing that. Mm. Um, she is retired. Um, Namaria says she's doing political art, recently made some images of Afghan women, for example. She's working with a group in Limoges to try to put together a cartoonist museum, you know, sort of in line with this validation or valorization of, of visual culture in France. Yeah. Like with Bidi, you know, comic strip mm -hmm. and, and caricatures. It's a bit of a French thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to the courtroom, though, it should be noted that some trials, like the Klaus Barbie trial, are filmed, but for historical purposes, that footage isn't released. Mm. The Paris attacks trial is being filmed for this reason. Courtroom artists aren't unique to France. You know, they do predate photography everywhere. But most courtrooms, for example, in the U.S. now allow photography and video. So the courtroom illustrators only cover the Supreme Court, for example. And interestingly, Sarah, the U.K. just last year passed a law allowing uh, filming in mm. courtrooms. So maybe the trade is going to die out. Yeah, I mean, there was a challenge in 2019 here in France um, to allow cameras in. The Constitutional Council overturned it. It said you can continue to ban them. So France might be the haven for courtroom artists in the years to come. Mm -hmm. 
So, Sarah, France has finally officially recognized and apologized for the suffering of the Harkis this week. Yeah, Harkis are Algerian Muslims who fought alongside the French army during the Algerian War of Independence, so from 1954 to 62. So history in the making, right? Mm -hmm. An acknowledgement ahead of September 25th, which is the official day of recognition of the Harkis. That's a day established in 2001 by then-President Sheikh Shihak. You know, there's always been a lot of tension around the issue of recognizing mm. the Harkis and the way that they were treated. But this week, President Emmanuel Macron addressed a group of around 300 Harkis and their descendants at the Elysee Palace, and he asked for forgiveness. The Harkis have rendered des services éminents à la France. Ils ont servi la France. The Harkis served and shed their blood for France, Macron said, by depriving the veterans, their wives, their children of their fundamental freedom. France let go of their hand and turned its back on them. I'm asking the Harkis and their families who were abandoned, who endured camps and prison for forgiveness, Macron said. It's a big statement. Mm. Um, he's not the first, though, to acknowledge that France let down the Harkis. Yeah, in 2016, uh, his predecessor, François Hollande, recognized the responsibility that French governments had in abandoning the Harkis, but Macron went much further this time. All right, so let's, you know, situate them. These are people, right, who fought with the French army against the FLN liberation movement in Algeria. Exactly. There were 200,000 of them uh, at the time, but they weren't equal soldiers. You know, these were auxiliaries. They were very much subordinated to the French army. And when the war ended in 1962 and Algeria was granted its independence, France withdrew, leaving the Harkis quite literally to fend for themselves. Many of them were assassinated or tortured by the FLN, who, of course, saw them as traitors. Under the peace accord that France signed with Algeria, France agreed to take in just over 40,000 Harkis. Some of them brought over their wives and children to France. In the end, around 90,000 fled Algeria in the end. So lots left behind. And, and even those who did make it to France, they weren't treated very well. Far from it. Mm. In fact, they were in many ways a reminder of French defeat. Mm. Uh, many of them were held in really squalid internment camps, mainly in the south of France. They were tantamount. They were, they were like open prisons. Uh, and these camps were, were kept open until 1975. In addition, perhaps most shocking of all, Sarah, were the, were the long-term consequences because these uh, harkis in the camps, they weren't allowed to go to school. French teachers were sent into the camps, but that didn't really prepare those kids to be equal citizens in France. Yeah, yeah. So this, this history of abuse goes back 60 years, and it's led to quite a lot of inequality. Yeah, there are now around 400,000 Harkis and their descendants living here in France. For years now, they've been lobbying to get more recognition and to get reparations for what they lived through and the prejudice they've suffered. And this pressure has finally paid off because Macron also announced there would be a law, hopefully by the end of this year, to officially recognize what's happened and to open the door to getting reparations. Um, there was already something, right, going in the works, going in that direction. Yeah. In 2018, shortly after Macron came to power, his government set up a fund of around 40 million euros, which has been used to help with individual Harkey cases, for example, uh, getting better housing for the for this second generation who are living often in real poverty. Although, I mean, 40 million is not yeah. that much money. No, a drop in the ocean. Mm. And also it was done very much on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, for individuals, whereas the new law will go much further, compensating in particular for this lack of education. Mm. Mohamed Hadouche, uh, who is from the association Agir, which has been fighting for reparations and justice, welcomed Macron's announcement. 
vous savez, on ne peut pas réparer euh, les morts qui sont restés en Algérie. On ne peut pas réparer. So you can't bring back those who died in Algeria. You can't make up for the people who were left there. He says uh, you can't make up for the years spent in the camps. You can't fix the lack of opportunity that those children suffered. We lived as recluses, he says, and we suffered from segregation for years. But the fact the president recognised this will help to redress the inequality that's been hanging over us for years. Macron's declaration, you know, coming just a few days before the annual National Harky Day, also has broader ramifications. Yeah, Macron is keen to improve relations with France's former colony and to appease the Algeria diaspora here. And, you know, as we've mentioned earlier, there is this presidential election coming up in the spring, and it does make you wonder whether Macron doesn't also have his eye on picking up the Harky vote. There's no doubt that uh, the Harkis are not natural Macron supporters. Uh. They tend to be more sympathetic to the right and even the hard right. Parties who either questioned or outright opposed France's decision to grant Algeria independence in the first place. Marine Le Pen, leader of the hard right national rally, was very quick to imply Macron had been rather opportunistic over all of this. She said Emmanuel Macron's generosity will not repair decades of disdain for Harkis. Maybe Macron can pick up some additional votes uh, through this. We'll see. But outside of all the party politics, asking one of your former colonies for forgiveness is a big deal. And it's a first for France. And we've now come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. And if you have any comments about the episode or in general, do send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And we're on Instagram, Spotlight on France. Also previous episodes at rfienglish.com, wherever you get your podcasts as well. And we'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, October the 7th. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye, Alison.